Mom, you're going to mess up the algorithm. Now, Karis, my daughter, was obviously frustrated with Danae as they worked on a social media post for their small business. And this was a, a couple years ago, and I think it's the first time I'd heard the word algorithm. And I thought, that's a sophisticated word, even for a, a homeschooler. But what does it have to do with earrings on Instagram? Now, at the time, they were being discipled by the social media Jedi, which is Ashley Salsworth, which you, you guys know, Crafty Concepts. And she was teaching them how to use algorithms on social media to promote and advertise things they were selling for their business. And I began to think and study what an algorithm is. And, and over time, I, I think I've learned that it is it is a set of rules. It refers to the way that Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and now TikTok create a set of rules that sorts through the content that you see on your individual accounts on all of these social media platforms. And so as you search, as you make friends, as you engage followers, as you follow other people, as you make purchases, as you view certain pictures and things, as you hashtag your social media creates a set of rules that sorts through your content and gives you what you want to see. Now, good marketers, they know how to trick the algorithms and find ways to use them to put things before you that you want to see and you want to buy. And this can be convenient for us. If you pulled up any of my social media right now, you would see University of Tennessee Athletics that would come up. You would see videos from the Dallas Cowboys training camp. You would see dirt track racing. You would see advertisement for runner boards on, for the side of my truck. I've been searching for those things. And you would see pictures of Jordan Force because I've been looking for those too. You would, see, you would see on my social media accounts. And it can be quite convenient, but it can also be extremely dangerous for us. The algorithm on your social media can be a dangerous thing for you, especially when it comes to what is real and what is true and what is going on in the world. As we think about our theological preferences, as we think about the politics we follow, as we think about our views of covid masks and lockdowns and all of those things that we engage in, your social media creates a little brain for you and informs the way you see the world around you. And ultimately, you see what you want to see. And your social media begins to set rules for what you believe, which is extremely dangerous. Your pixelated preferences begin to disciple you about the real world. Now, this is actually just a picture of what goes on in our heart. Because our heart has an algorithm. And that algorithm, the rule is, I am king. I call the shots. And as I feed into that preference, 
That's the way I begin to see the world around me. I begin to live as if I'm king. I begin to believe that I am king. And there is a rule that will not allow me to think any other way. And so what is not allowed because of the algorithm of my heart are words like deny, die, suffer, that doesn't fit within our heart's preferences. And it did not fit within the heart of Peter. When Jesus told him last week, we looked at this plan. If I am the Son of God, the Christ, you know what it means? It means I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Take up your cross and follow me there. Come to Jerusalem with me and declare that I am Lord and that will mean your death too. deny yourself, lose it all to gain everything. And what did Peter do? He says, no, that doesn't that doesn't fit within the rules. That doesn't fit within my heart's preferences. And so he goes to Jesus and says, God forbid. No way. Ain't happening. That's wrong, Jesus. And he thinks Jesus, the Messiah, is wrong about what the Messiah should do. And Jesus' response to him is, get behind me, Satan. You're acting on behalf of Satan trying to thwart the plans of God. Because my plans don't fit within your algorithm. But here's the deal, Peter. There are some who are standing here, as we will see in verse 1, verse 9. Jesus says there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it comes in power. He says to Peter and the disciples, y'all think I'm crazy, but I'm, there, there are those here that will not taste death until they see this kingdom I'm calling you to die for. And we read that and we think, what in the world is he talking about? Is he going to come back the second coming before these men die? Are they not going to die like Elijah? They're going to be taken up into heaven. What is he talking about? The rapture? What is he talking about? Well, Mark puts this story of the transfiguration right after this verse, right after this statement by Jesus to show us what he's talking about. Notice verse two. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. You don't understand what it's going to mean to take up your cross and, and die. You don't want to do that. Well, I'm about to show you something. I'm about to show you power and glory and authority for which you will not have any other desire but to die for. And the word words here, six days, it's immediately to remind us of Moses when he went up Mount Sinai to see the glory of the Lord on a six day journey. And here Peter takes the inner circle, these fishermen who have been called from the very beginning to follow him, to, to leave, leave their family businesses and follow him and be foundations of what he's doing in the world. To take his gospel out and tell the world who he is. And he takes him up the mountain. And other gospel writers tell us that the disciples actually fell asleep. And one of the reasons they fall asleep is because they're probably, they're probably depressed. 
Everything was going good. The signs, the wonders, the power, the teaching, everything's going great. And now he's going to go die. What has he called us to? And they're on this retreat with Jesus and they fall asleep, probably in their despair. And then Jesus wakes them up, transfigured, the text says, before them. Now, this word means to be changed. Now, Jesus wasn't changed in his essence or nature. The, the word actually refers to being changed from the inside out, not the outside in. What Jesus is doing here is he is showing them what is on the inside and it is changing what they see on the outside. Notice verse three, his clothes became radiant. The inside is shining through. And, and notice it says intensely white, intensely white. Mark is at pains to grab words here to explain what they saw on the on this mountain. It was radiant, blinding, and intense, white, a, a color so white you've never seen it before, whiter than white. And he was referring to the purity that they saw, as he says, and no one on earth could bleach them in this way. You, you couldn't get clothes this white apart from something otherworldly that's going on here. And these men are allowed to see it. To see in some glimpse of veiled glory what no man has ever been able to see. What Moses couldn't see because God said, if you see it, you'll die. And here these men are able to see it. Now, we see this revelation, first of all, shows us that the essence of Jesus's glory is his purity. Is his purity. The word glory means weight. And it refers to someone's authority. You, you think about someone who has the most authority. We say they have the most weight, the most gravity. Now here, Jesus has the most weight because he is sinless, because he is pure. He, he has the most authority because he is Holy, he is right. And here Jesus shows this to them. Jesus gets to call the shots because Jesus is sinless. Jesus gets to be king because he is pure and he is right and he is holy. And here this, these men get a glimpse of this. Jesus is full of pure glory. But what does the Bible say about us? We fall short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty three. What does that mean? We don't have authority. Why don't we have authority? Because we're impure. We're not pure like Jesus. We're not sinless like Jesus. So we don't have the authority or right to be king. We can't be king because we are sinful and we are impure. Jesus is the only one who can be king. And so as we think about breaking this algorithm of our heart that says, I am king, we must begin by confessing, I am sinful. And the height of my sin is to act like I am king. Because I don't have that right. I am impure. 
And God has only given the pure Son of God the right to be that King. And I fall short of His glory. We must break that. We must confess that. I have tried to be King and I don't deserve to be King. I am not sovereign because I am sinful. I can't be King. Jesus can only be King because He is sovereign and He is sinless. That's where we break that selfish desire in our hearts. And we have to admit when we think about this, it's not been good for us when we've tried to be king. Because we don't have the power to be king. You know the worry and anxiety, the frustration, the anger that you feel on a daily basis? You know what that is? That's you bumping up against the glory of God. You don't have His glory And so you worry because you can't control the future. You don't have His glory. And so you get angry that things don't go your way. It's not good for you to try to be king. Relax. Confess. I'm not king. I can't be king. I'm not sovereign. And I'm sinful. And I think all of us here would admit today... From our impure hearts when we have tried to rule and reign, it's never gone well. You know, I look back on my life and I don't know of one decision when it's just me. I'm making the decision in my own little world, in my own little mind, in my own little heart. And I make the decision where I can look back and say, you know what? I made a great decision. I'm, I did it. I made a great decision. Nobody helped me. Nothing. Just me. I, no, moments when I do that, it's always a mess. And I look back on my life and say the moments I tried to be king for my impure heart because it because it cannot decide what is good and right because it's impure. I made a mess. No, Jesus is holy. Let him make the decisions. Jesus is right. Jesus is pure. Let him control the future. Trust him to control the future. Admit, confess you're not king. Break that rule in your heart that says I have to be king. Notice verse four. As he transfigured, there appeared Elijah and Moses. Now, this is odd, right? This is weird. Just this prophet of old and the great Moses just appear out of nowhere. Now, where did they come from? Well, we talk about this a lot here as we think about the spiritual realm. There are things that are here right now in the spiritual realm that we don't see. And it seems as though Jesus has gone to this mountain to have a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And God just pulls back the veil and allows these three disciples to see it. They're talking. Elijah and Moses, they they summarize the Old Testament revelation of God. You have a prophet, you have the law. So often we hear of this summary, the law and the prophets. They they summarize God's revelation of himself. Moses led the people out of Egypt and delivered the law. Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal and delivered the word of God to the people of God. They both saw God's glory in very unique ways. Remember, Moses goes up and says, God, I want to see your face. If you can't see my face, you're going to die. I will allow you to get a glimpse of of my body back when I walk by you. And so he puts him in a rock and he goes by and Moses is able just to get a little peak of God's glory and it it sunburns his face 
in a way that scares people. And Elijah, this great prophet, didn't die. He's caught up into heaven to see the glory of God in a way no one else has seen. And here they are. Notice the text says they're talking with Jesus. Now, uh, Luke tells us they're talking about his departure. They're talking about his death. Isn't it interesting in the spiritual realm, there's conversation about the crucifixion. Oh, what's about to take place. They know where Jesus is marching, where he is going. And notice verse five. And Peter said, now here's the question. Who talks in the presence of Jesus, Moses and Elijah? Unveiled in glory. Who's going to open their mouth? Peter. He butts in their conversation. He, he just, hey guys. Rabbi. It is good that we are here. This is awesome. You said we were going to see power and glory. And we see it. This is amazing. Just butts in their conversation. It's good that we are here. And I've got a great idea. Again, a great idea in the presence of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell y'all what we should do. Let's make some tents. Now, I don't need a tent. I'll sleep on rocks. No, a tent for you, Jesus. We'll put yours in the middle. For Moses and one for Elijah. Now, the term tents here, it could also refer to tabernacle. And we think about in the Old Testament where the glory rested in the tabernacle, eventually the temple. And, and here there's sort of a picture of what the, the people of God would have celebrated in the Feast of the Booths, where they celebrated the Passover, where they celebrated the Exodus. And Peter says, Let, let's, let's go back to the, the old days and let's celebrate when the glory rested in, in the tents, the tabernacle. Let's go back to the old days and remember the Exodus. Let's have an Exodus right now. Let's celebrate. Let's create tabernacles and tents for your glory to rest here. A place where we can come honor you. A place where we can come worship you. Let's stay here. But one of the things Peter doesn't understand is the glory of God is a person. And the glory of God cannot be contained in a house. The glory of God must be obeyed. The glory of God cannot be contained. He is a person that must be obeyed. You see, in the Old Testament, glory was unveiled in light, in fire, in clouds, in presence. But here, what we're seeing is the glory of God is no longer contained in a place, but a person. You know, it would be safe for us if the glory of God wasn't a person, right? If the glory of God was just a mountaintop experience, you know, when you go away to that retreat and you have that amazing weekend in prayer and the word of God and fellowship with other people and you just want to stay there. I, I, I would I would like for life to be this way at all times. The women of the word conference. 
If I could just stay in the wow forever. Did you get that? Wow. Women of the word. If I could just stay there and, and at the youth retreat, the mission trip, whatever it is, where I have this amazing experience and we equate Jesus to the experience and the experience is Jesus. And I just want to stay here in the experience. No, the, 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 the glory of God is a person who you must follow away from that experience that you've seen, that you felt. It would be safe to stay on the mountain. It would be fun if Jesus could be contained in our theological debates that we just leave at the restaurant with our friends. If that's all Jesus is to us is a debate around theology, philosophy, and I can just leave him there and walk away. That would be fun. It would be convenient for us if Jesus can be contained to a worship service. Sunday after Sunday, I go to the worship service and that's my Jesus and I leave him there. Jesus will not allow the disciples to do that. That's not why he took him on the mountain. The glory of God in a person is threatening. And especially when that person is calling you to forsake everything and follow him and die. And to reject that is personal. To reject the experience. To reject the debate. To not show up at the event. That's abstract. But when I say no to a person, that's real. And it's a personal rejection. And so here, God wants to make clear who this person is. Notice verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. Now, this happens all throughout the Bible where the presence of God comes down in a cloud. Happened at Mount Sinai. Was covered in a cloud. And notice a voice out of the cloud. The cloud almost shields everyone from the, the, the glory of the voice that is going to come down and pound creation with, with, with authority. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so we have Moses, Elijah, two witnesses, and now we have three, God himself, who is declaring who this person is. This is the son of God. Notice, beloved this is the one I have set my love upon. This is my son who I'm declaring I am for. He is my son. But notice my beloved son, we could say chosen son. He is there, there's relationship here between the father and son, but there's also authority. The term son also throughout scripture refers to king. He is the heir. He is my king. I've set my love upon him and I've made him my king. And so what is the natural response to that? Listen to him. You want to know what you should do? You want to know what my will for you is? Listen to him, my beloved son. And then all of a sudden they look around and they no longer see anyone but Jesus. Now there's a point here. God is saying you have the greatest word in all of history in the sun. You don't have to look for another word. You don't have to look for another Moses. You do not have to look for another prophet here. You have all you need in the sun. Listen to him here. God is saying 
You have one better than Moses. You have one better than Elijah. Listen to him. What the father is saying is Jesus isn't a walk on in God's plan. Jesus is God's plan. Jesus is not a glory that Moses that, that, that you walk up and you see on a mountain here. He is a glory that has come down to walk and, and to and that you must follow. He's not just seen. In a mountain, he comes down with authority and you must listen to him. He's not just delivered the law. He is the law of God. He's not just a prophet. He is the prophecy. He is God's glory in flesh. Listen to him. Now, if Jesus is God's king. He must be your king. And the way you make him your king is you listen to his word. You know, God's will for our life that we like to make really, really complicated is actually very, very simple. Listen to Jesus. If we focused on that, a lot of things would make more sense in our life. When we think about God's will, we like to focus on what's unclear. Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? How do I make this decision? All of those things are unclear and we worry and we create anxiety in our life about those things because we're not focused on what is very clear obedience to what Jesus has said. Jesus has said, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. What if I just focused on that? Jesus said, follow me. What if I just focused on that? Jesus said, love your enemies. What if I was busy on, on just loving my enemies? Where are my enemies and who should, how do I love them? Jesus commands us to make disciples. What if I was focused on, on making disciples and, and listening to him and knowing that is God's will for my life? All of these other things in our life would take care of themselves. Because we would be listening to him first and foremost. Now, this is good for us as we think about how bad it is for us to be king. God has revealed himself in Jesus as our king, and it's for our good. Why is it for our good? First of all, as we've just seen, he is pure. And so when we listen to him, that means his word is pure. You can trust when you listen to Jesus that there are no ulterior motives coming from Jesus. You can trust him. He's not trying to manipulate you. He's not trying to give you a sales pitch. There is actually nothing in it for Jesus when he calls you to follow him. There's nothing. He, you can trust him. It's a pure motive. He's telling you for your good, for your joy. And because he is good, we know his word for us is good. So the hard things he calls us to do, like being merciful to those we don't want to be merciful to. We know Jesus is good. So that call is good on our life to show mercy to those who we don't want to be merciful to. And because he is right, we know that his word is right. It is the right thing to do. We don't have to second guess it. We don't have to get an expert. We don't have to compare it to stats. It is right. It is true. Listen to him. Focus on what he has said. Through all the clutter, through all the other things, listen to him. And notice verse nine, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Now, most of the time they don't listen to Jesus. 
But after you've seen holy glory and that power, you're going to listen to. Notice he says, until the son of man has risen from the dead. And this gets even more strange for them. This is something Jesus tells them over and over. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. And it's like they don't get that part. They just they can't fathom resurrection. Notice verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead mean? What, what does that mean? And the connection here is how do we see that glory and that power and then resurrection? Because how in the world does that glory and power die? To be raised. Resurrection doesn't make sense to them because dying doesn't make sense to them. And notice verse 11, they asked him, they're still trying to figure all of this out. They're sorting out their theology. How do you fit into all this, Jesus? Because we've read the scribes and they say that first Elijah must come. In Malachi chapter four, we see before the kingdom comes, there is a prophet of Elijah that will come and he will preach and he will turn the hearts of the people to God. And they're saying, where is this happening? And Jesus turns to them and said, Elijah has come first to restore all things. But I want to be clear about something. How is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So Elijah has come, but I have to warn you, there's still suffering coming. Notice Jesus says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. And so Jesus's point here is Elijah has come and Elijah will come. Uh, Elijah has come. And what we what we seem to think here is that when Jesus talks about Elijah coming to restore all things, he's talking about the prophet John the Baptist. And the spirit of Elijah rested upon him. Just as Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal, John the Baptist confronted Herod and he confronted the religious leaders and he was correcting their thoughts about the kingdom. So Elijah has come, but Elijah will come again. But I want you to know this Elijah that came, he was rejected. John the Baptist was beheaded. And, and this makes sense because Jesus says the son of man will suffer also. And so the prophet suffers and the king suffers and the kingdom comes first through suffering. That's his point. And he says, as it is written of him, this is all God's plan that the prophet and the king would suffer on their way to glory. And they don't get it. They still don't get it. They still don't get denied, die, suffering. How in the world does it happen? We've seen your face glowing with pure light. We have been blinded by your glory. How in the world do you suffer? How do you die? Is it not time for Elijah to come in? And the reason they they don't get it is because their hearts, the algorithm of their heart, the rule of their heart says no suffering. But Jesus has taken them up on the mountain to see the one who has all power and all authority and to say, I have the right to call you to suffer with me. He has taken them up on the mountain so that they would see his pure authority and know that it is right to call them to suffer. He has the right to call them to suffer. And when he calls them to suffer, it is right for him to do so. And he's taken them on the mountain so that they would see that power and that glory and that pure authority. It's the same thing he did with Moses. 
Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the mountain starts quaking and shaking and there's fire and there's smoke everywhere and the people are scared to death and they're saying, Moses, we're not following you up that mountain. We're not going up that mountain. There's something scary at the top of that mountain. And it is the Lord Almighty. So when Moses comes down and he delivers the law to them, And the question is, Moses, why should we obey? Moses goes, did you not see the top of the mountain? He's holy. He has the power and authority to tell you to do whatever he wants. Be holy as he is holy. And it's the same thing that happened to Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees the Lord of glory? He sees Jesus high and lifted up. And, and, and you have these screeching angels flying around as he gets this vision of the throne room of heaven. And they are declaring to one another in, in loud, thunderous voices, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and, and Isaiah sees that and he confesses, I'm not king. But then what does he say? Here I am. Send me wherever you want because you are holy and you have the right to do whatever you want to with my life. And God tells Isaiah, you're going to go to a people who are going to hate you and they're not going to listen to you. So what business do you have doing that? And Isaiah would say to us, oh, the Lord is holy and he commanded me to go. So, Peter, why should you take up your cross and die? Because Jesus is holy and he has the authority to tell you to do so. To call you to do so. Peter would later write to suffering Christians in Second Peter, and he would say to us today, I saw on that mountain, I saw a cloud, I saw the voice of God, I heard it come out of the cloud and shake the mountain, this is my beloved son. Peter would say to these suffering Christians, I saw that, I heard that, but you have a more sure word. Peter would say to you today, you have a greater vision than he had when he was on the mountain with Jesus. And so you have a greater promise to see clearly, to see clearly today. Something Peter couldn't see clearly in that moment. You have Genesis to Revelation. You have every promise of God that is true. You have a more sure word and every inch and every piece and every syllable of Scripture declares to us, this is my King. Listen to Him. And so when He calls you to suffer, you listen. Because you know it's good. You know it's right. And He has authority and right to tell you. But the nature of their question here is this. If the kingdom is here, why are we going to suffer? And Jesus' response to us today would be, Kingdom glory cannot be displayed without suffering. You don't know the worth of Jesus until you go to the cross of Jesus. Just on the mountain, they've seen holy purity and authority. But when you get to the cross, you see it in a way you can't see it any other way. You see his holiness on the scales of Golgotha. You see a holy, pure, 
payment for sin that you can't see any other way until He is suffocating under the wrath of God. And you declare who is holy and who is worthy to pay for my sin. Only Jesus can pay for my sin. He is the only one who is holy. He is the only one who is pure. And you don't see His authority until He slays death with His own death. You can't see that glory until He suffers. It is necessary for the cross to happen so you understand the holiness and glory of God. You will not see it any other way. And here's the truth he's trying to press on Peter and the disciples. You won't taste my glory until you suffer for the cross. Until you with your life declare, yes, the holy king is worth it. See, there's something that happens within us when we suffer for this glorious king. It's not just seeing and talking about his glory and saying he's worth it. When people begin to get awkward around you because you share the gospel with them, that does something to your soul that says, yes, Jesus is better. And you feel his worth. Well, when when even today we have brothers and sisters in the Middle East and there are soldiers who are bearing down with on them with guns because they are Christians, there is a worth and there is a glory that they are filling in their souls that Peter would say, I couldn't even fill on the mountain until I suffered for him. And that's what he's calling us to. Is to say, yes, He's worthy. He is glorious. He is pure. He has the right. And it is right. And it is good for me to follow Him. But if you are enamored with your glory, you will not follow Him to glory. If you are enamored with your glory, you will serve yourself. You will protect yourself. And you will be left with no glory. You won't see the value of Calvary. You can say, I could do it myself. But if you're beholding His glory... You will be denying yourself, following him and dying to yourself. And you will be given everything. Are you willing? Are you willing to trade the world for your soul? The glory of eternity? Are you willing to fill day after day in the scales of life? What is worth the most? My life or Jesus are you willing to put the glory of Jesus on the scale and say nothing outweighs him? Nothing could be more valuable than him. Are you willing to see that? You see, the problem is that you can't see it. You can't see it. You know why you can't see it? It's because you're feeding yourself something else. You're feeding yourself self. And so whose glory do you want to see? The king in the mirror or the king on the cross? What are you searching for? What are you following? What are you loving, self or savior? What's on the news feed of your life? It's whatever you're feeding the feed. Is it self or is it Jesus? Is it a cross or is it comfort? You answer the question. Whose glory am I living for? And maybe the answer is, well, maybe it's time for Jesus to break the algorithm of my life. Maybe it's time to come to Calvary and let him just mess that rule up that I'm king and see his authority.